I'm here today with uh, John Sterling Walker. John is uh, an occultist and a poet. Uh, he has been uh, striving to walk the path that Rudolf Steiner, the, the mystic, the German mystic, uh, born in 1861, uh, created. Uh, he's been doing that for 17 years. He's also the co-founder of the Institute of Hypostatic Science and its related Brotherhood Project. Uh, and we'll be talking with John today mainly about Steiner's work and, and the path that Steiner has, has created and its relevance to uh, our world today. Uh, so, John, thank you very much. Thanks, yeah. Thank you for being here. And maybe first, John, you could tell us a little bit about how you got started on the, on the path and, and how you got started doing work uh, in relationship to Steiner's philosophy and his, oh. uh, his mystical teachings. Cool, thanks. Um, I should start probably by saying that... Um, to say that he created the path would misrepresent what the way he spoke about what he was doing, and and in that sense also then the way I became involved. The answer to that question might be made clear through addressing this idea of create of who did create this path. Um, which so Rudolf Steiner always spoke about the path of anthroposophy, as he called it, as one that has existed agelessly, and. Uh, it was able to take on in the in the early 20th century, really starting in the late 19th century, in Europe, in Central Europe, in the German-speaking world. So there's a certain form, he says, that the path of occult knowledge requires in an age of science. And so what he did create, exactly it's true, is a form. He gave a form... He would have. He said himself as well. He I, actually he wouldn't even have said that because he rarely spoke about himself. <laughs> he would. He he would not have said I gave it a form. I Rudolf Steiner gave it a form. He would have said it took on a form that has um, implications that are eternally present in any age, but especially uh, the form that anthroposophy represents of this ancient path is the form that that has those implications for our scientific age that, um, that we need to experience in the true power that they have in any given age. And so anthroposophy is the expression exactly then of the application of the fruit of Western intellectual striving in philosophy and science. The application of the fruit of that striving to ancient methods of initiation that uh, have existed in all the mystery religions and um, and, in, and in Christianity as well in certain what were considered mostly heretical mm-hmm. uh, streams or segments. I see. So, so you you're uh, essentially you see Steiner as um, as someone who 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 translated uh, the uh, you know an ancient path, an ancient right. mystical path, right. in a modern scientific age. Yes, and he wrestled with this idea of mysticism too. So he would not have called himself a mystic, but it's very clear why anyone who who knows his work and tries to find a way to describe it would readily come to that term for it, because it does involve an awareness of the transcendent realities that we normally associate with what we call mysticism. But he wrestled with that, and one of his earliest books, in fact, is called Christianity as Mystical fact. <laughs> and that was an early expression in, in my perception of how he was working in the early 20th century. It was a, the, even this title, Christianity as Mystical Fact, <laughs> already was giving expression to what he was wrestling with at that time, I think, very clearly, as his own work as an occultist in the world was beginning, really, in a public way. Um, 
in connection with the Theosophical Society in Germany, um, of which he was the general secretary, that the, um, the relationship between the kind of revelatory experience that one can have, and he, he often, as his, as his work progressed, he, he, he could go into great detail about the way in which a path of initiation produces the possibility for awareness of transcendent realities. And he began more and more clearly, beginning, as I say, with this title of this book, to make the distinction between the kind of mystical experience or mysticism that in a certain way involves, without question, a very authentic apprehension of occult or spiritual realities, occult meaning nothing more or less than hidden, hidden or spiritual realities can be apprehended on a mystical path. But what's needed in this time, he says, always uh, emphasized over and over throughout his work, what's needed in this time is not not the path, not so much the path of mysticism, if we are looking, that is to say, at a spiritual path as one that is really supposed to result, as you and I were saying in an earlier conversation today, Jeff, in action for the good in the real circumstances of the planet at this time. Because a mystical path, as he would put it, brings us into contact with the realities we're apprehending in a very deeply feeling sense. And it's not as though that feeling sense can't be accompanied by a very clear conception of what one is experiencing in intellect. Mm -hmm. But for him, what was important was to recognize that the path of thinking unfolded in the West through Western philosophy was also a path, if it was understood correctly, and if one didn't get caught in the traps of thinking, that thinking itself was a path to the kind of clarity of apprehension of occult realities that alone could hold um, its own, so to speak, against the clarity of conception that we see in the world of materialistic science. Mm -hmm. And so... again, in this first, one of these early works, the Christianity as mystical fact, he's trying to point up just by the title, the relationship between ancient uh, experiences that we would call mystical, by ancient I mean more anciently uh, conventional paths to an awareness of of the supersensible. The relationship between that experience of uh, spiritual reality and the kind of experience of it that really comes to the certainty that allows us to use the word fact about it. Mm-hmm. And that has, that has to involve a thinking element that isn't necessarily normally associated with the quality of mystical experience that people can have who go deeply into their inner lives and meditate upon that and then find within themselves a connection to the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was very, very emphatically... Uh, seeking to bring home to those who could hear him how important it was to recognize the gift that Western philosophy has to offer humanity if we don't get caught in the traps of thinking, but rather uh, cultivate thinking into an organ for the kind of clarity of perception of spiritual things that scientists who study the material world have, mm-hmm. or claim to have at least about their research. That's, that's great. So I want to get back to that in just a minute. Yeah. Um, I just wanted you to say a word or two about, uh, I know that 17 years ago you had an experience that set you off on this path. Yeah. Uh, and I'd, I'd just like to hear a little bit about that. And then 
I've, I've, I've made notes because I want to continue with that, that discussion that we just started. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, on Sunday, November 24th, 1991, on Twin Peaks in San Francisco, I always refer to the time and place <laughs> because uh, I, I kind of went crazy that day. And um, I, I'm going to end up having to blame that event on that spot so that I don't have to take any responsibility. <laughs> um, but um, on Sunday, November 24th, 1991, on Twin Peaks in San Francisco, I had an experience that led to this work of the last 17 years, which is not well-known or big, but there's a number of people um, who have come together over the course of the last 17 years with a deep interest in furthering this path that Rudolf Steiner initiated in the form in which it, it's called anthroposophy. Mm-hmm. And, um, but but the, it's important to say that on that day in 1991, in the, in the fall, late fall, I, um, I had no, I'd, I'd never heard of Rudolf Steiner's name, I had no connection to the anthroposophical world of any kind in the outer sense of the society or anything like that, the society that bears the name of anthroposophy, the anthroposophical society. Um, in the world, I had no connection outwardly to any of those things. I was, in fact, a member of another spiritual movement altogether. And um, in the context of the religious discipline that I was practicing very, very um, fervently, I guess you could say, within that religious movement, um, I had an experience that I thought at the time on the day in question, I thought was going to result in my doing something for that religious movement better than what I could have done before that experience, maybe is a good way to put it, Um, more effective. (laughs) And instead, within a week, I was on my way to being kicked out of the religious movement Uh in question. And so it took me a few years, and I worked with some other people who got kicked out together with me from that particular um, spiritual movement. I worked with them for some time to try to, we considered it a kind of reform impulse we were acting out of within that movement. Um, but in the course of those few years, within the three or four years after that experience, I did hear the name of Rudolf Steiner. And I found myself in Europe with my European wife, and I um, went to the Gertianum. I ended up at the Gertianum, which is the headquarters of the anthroposophical movement in the world. Uh, its architecture is well known in that part of Europe, and in, in some other places as well in the architectural world recognized as a kind of uh, unique expression of the architectural impulse. And it was designed by Rudolf Steiner, the Goetheanum. Um, it's named after Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the great German poet and dramatist who is also a scientist. And, um, and I found myself there. And when I stood by Rudolf Steiner's grave on that spot, in 19, it was 1996, I think, I finally felt I knew exactly why. I had been kicked out of this other movement Mm -hmm. and what my spiritual experience on Sunday, November 24th, 1991 on Twin Peaks in San Francisco had been about. It's not that I, it's not that I didn't have a clear idea what it was about from the beginning, but, but I never imagined until I encountered Rudolf Steiner's work that it could become as clear as it became Mm -hmm. what exactly had happened to me and why and how and, uh, and what it had to do with um, now the, a work that's been unfolding for 17 years. Mm-hmm. So over the period of time since my first visit to the Gertianum and standing by Steiner's grave um, and having this personal experience of suddenly knowing why mm-hmm. all this other stuff had happened, um, the work that I've been doing since that experience 17 years ago began to take on a form that we now identify as anthroposophical and we call ourselves an institute for hypostatic science 
hypostatic science being another word for anthroposophy. Fantastic. Thank you. So uh, getting back to our talking about Rudolf Steiner, he, he was born in 1861, died in 1925, I think. Yeah. And uh, I've been doing some, some other reading myself about other thinkers and philosophers in that time period. Yeah. And, and I, I want to ask you and see if you would agree with this, but it seemed to me that, uh, that that time period was a very rich time period in Western thought because it was, I mean, the, the Enlightenment, the ideas of the Enlightenment were well underway. Right. Science was, uh, was, was being wildly victorious in, in, its, in its view. The, this, this scientific uh, view was being very victorious. And I think a lot of philosophers, mystics, uh, and you know, and other thoughtful people were feeling somewhat that scientific materialism might take over, mm-hmm. and and that they wanted to defend the spiritual. Exactly. And 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 I feel like Steiner is one with a number of of great thinkers and philosophers right. who really were trying to bring the 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 clarity of reason mm-hmm. that science had had brought to the material world. Exactly. And bring it to the spiritual world. Exactly. And 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 thereby try and save. The spiritual from being relegated to the unreal. Exactly right. Yes, and um, Steiner talks uh, over and over again, for example, about the uh, well, one could say what interchange to be very diplomatic. It, it really did become a conflict at certain points, quite brutal, at least spiritually brutal, <laughs> in other ways also brutal, uh, between realists and nominalists. For example, in the Middle Ages, the idea that words have something behind them that's actually real in the platonic sense of an idea that transcends material reality but is, as Steiner would say, even more real than the material reality that, uh, that's a reflection of it um, versus the nominalist idea that words are simply terms human beings arrive at in order to represent an idea that they have that's not doesn't have an independent reality. Right. In other words, the, the realists believe that, that words are are referring to some idealistic transcendent reality. Exactly. And anomalous is saying that no, a word is just labeling something that some material In this, in that sense thing. you could say a word is a convenience for communication about things that right. don't have their own independent reality apart mm-hmm. from the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that he ta- Steiner talks about how the, those two streams of thought that manifest in that particular way of speaking about them in the Middle Ages and in the scholastic debates that um that, that, that those two streams of thought, they really are characteristics of human beings in a certain way. There are certain human beings that tend towards a concern about things that results in their not seeing any real reason to think that there's some transcendent reality behind the things we're talking about and others who have a different sensibility. And he's never speaking in a critical way to, in a certain sense, divorce those people from one another as human beings and fail to see them all as striving Mm-hmm. out of something authentically essential to human spiritual evolution. But he does see that in the middle of the 19th century, something happened that allowed the nominalistic sensibility to begin to prevail over the sensibility of what I was just referring to out of older terminology as realists. You know, now we think realism is something else, but right. but the, right. this platonic... It's a confusing term. Right, it can be very confusing. <laughs> as Steiner says, to the occultist, to the person who finds themselves capable or for whatever reason, um, in possession of awareness of spiritual things, those spiritual things are more real than the material reality that are, of less Plato would say, that, of which that, that they're a, um, the, the material things that are a pale reflection, really a shadow of the higher things. 
But um, but there's no need to take sides in these disputes, he would always say, Rudolf Steiner. He, he, he encouraged us as occultists on the path that he represented never to fall into, um, in German, Parteinehmen, meaning taking sides. We don't, mm-hmm. taking sides in, in, in matters of dispute is not a fruitful way mm-hmm. um, to proceed in, in human spiritual evolution because evolution, human spiritual evolution by the very nature of, well, you can even hear it in that language there, it involves all human beings. So how can you take sides against yourself? Right. Or as Lincoln said, or as quoting Christ, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You know, mm-hmm. so um, so the, for him, the question was always, how do we reconcile the contradictions that arise within thinking among different representatives of different streams of thought? In the case of the of the matter of materialistic science, it did in the middle of the nineteenth century. It was very clear to him. He was born in eighteen sixty one, but he witnessed it as he went into the um, university the educational system in Central Europe at the time and, and became a respected academic himself, an expert on Goethe, um, he saw that that the things that Goethe, for example, had been trying to represent until his death in 1832 were already being so neglected and forgotten when it came to, uh, as a poet and a dramatist, Goethe was never forgotten. But as a scientist, he was regarded with a certain kind of, I would say in a, in a way, amused interest when he was alive. Mm-hmm. by the experts in the field. Um, but then really his work as a scientist was really utterly neglected and forgotten mm-hmm. by the middle of the 20th, 19th century, excuse me, and beyond. Um, and, and Goethe had made a claim <laughs> already that was audacious to say the least. He said, although he knew that his work as a poet and a dramatist would be known presumably in the future, what he really would be known for by future generations was that he understood light better than Newton. Right. Now, to make a claim that you understand light better than Newton, mm-hmm. you know, well, I think it speaks for itself in an age of uh, materialistic science. Well, he had a, I mean, I'm a little sketchy on the details, but yeah. he did have some quarrel with Newton over light. The, well, yeah, Goethe, Goethe felt that uh, reducing light to wavelengths <laughs> was completely to misunderstand its nature. Not only in some poetic sense or metaphorical sense, but in a very real scientific sense, reducing light to wavelengths is to completely fail to grasp its objective nature. Now, that's an assertion that can't be demonstrated, you know, the the truth of of which cannot be so readily demonstrated in a laboratory with instruments. Mm -hmm. But that was part of his concern, is that, as Goethe said, if we as human beings allow our capacity to perceive to be aided by instrumentation that heightens its material dimension of perception um, extraordinarily. If we allow that aiding of our perception as human beings by instruments to proceed too quickly or too soon, it will come to undercut the capacities we have as human beings to perceive on much deeper levels Mm -hmm. through our physical senses, not in some ESP kind of mysterious way. But through our physical senses, Goethe was already showing that it's possible to come to an apprehension of reality in the universe in a very objective sense that has nothing to do with superstition or beliefs or um, constructs in the mind, but really apprehend something working in nature, that uh, this, this apprehension of something deeper in nature that will be undercut, he warned, by the fascination we will come to have with all that we can know about the purely material side of things through instruments. Yeah. 
Right. I mean, that's it. I find it interesting because I've been reading a bit about the American philosopher William James, who would yeah. have been a contemporary, roughly, of Steiner, yeah. a little bit older than Steiner, I guess. But, but he obviously had these same concerns, and he was a he was an MD, a, do, a doctor himself, yeah. so he was a scientist. Yeah. But he felt that the that science only recognizes the reality of that which can be scientifically verified. Right, and no, normally by quantifiable means. So it, it generally comes down to some kind of ability to enumerate. Right. And, and for an occultist, that, that, as soon as you assert that truth is only to be had through a process of enumeration, for an occultist, you're already in a, in a realm of materialism that has nothing to do with reality in the truest sense. Not that enumeration is not helpful and an accurate method or path by which to come to a correct apprehension of material things. Right. It is, it is. Right. But as soon as one begins to think that the only objectivity possible in the truest sense of apprehending what's real without any prejudices in the mind like superstition or fantasy affecting the apprehension, as soon as one begins to believe that the only objective apprehension possible is that which results from the path of enumeration, one has left the sphere where one can apprehend something that's qualitative as objective. Right, that's right. And, to, and, and the idea that anything qualitative can be objective, well, that's a, that idea is really more and more um, ridiculed mm -hmm. in our time. That's right, because, because I think, uh, because scientific materialism, the danger of it, is that it sets a limit on reality. Exactly. And, it, and, and, I, and I think what James and Steiner and, and many thinkers were saying was that, well, there, there may be things that are real yeah. that are not scientifically verified. It's not that the things that are scientifically verifiable aren't real. They certainly are. But they, are, they don't limit what's possible. And what Steiner's trying to say is that there is... A, he would even um, criticize maybe that formulation of yeah. yours. He wouldn't criticize a person, but he might criticize a formulation. Sure. <laughs> he might criticize that formulation of yours because it suggests that the only science is this science uh -huh. that enumerates. Right. That makes sense. But he says, science, we don't even know what the word means, which in Latin, in English, the word we have, science, comes from the, the verb for to know in Latin. In, in German, it's Wissenschaft. It's the, it, to be a kind of literalist and try to translate something and <laughs> maybe get the idea across better than, a, than an actual English word. It's a knowledge ship. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> the knowledge ship of something. But the, the point is there's, a, there's a, a relationship to reality that we refer to as scientific when um, when that relationship is characterized by objectivity and the path to becoming objectively aware of something really present is a scientific path. It, that word now has been co-opted by the forces exa exactly that say that the only kind of, of proof we can have for anything and thus call the apprehension of that which we've proved as a, uh, call that objective, the word science has been co-opted by, by, the, by the idea that only that which is innumerable is objective. Right. And that's not science. Steiner's already saying that's not science. That's a distortion of science. It's an extension, you might at the best say. The best you could say is it's an extension of science. Mm -hmm. It's not science itself. Science is the path to objective cognition and the concern for that. Mm -hmm. um, and the, humanity wasn't always concerned about that. Right. There's something that's developed in what you refer to as the Enlightenment. We always 
hear about it that way in in our uh, mainstream academic discourse enlightenment um the renaissance the there's a movement taking place in the last centuries you know of course that resulted in the industrial revolution and the um technological age we live in now that ha that began when people in in the human race as a whole began certain people in the human race as a whole began to be concerned about this idea that i can know i can know out of my own thinking i can know something that's objectivity and until then uh, a general tendency or trend rather than this i can know idea was an authority will tell me mm -hmm. right that's someone right. who had who and we hear this all the time now for example often in the medical profession among others he's supposed to know the ones who are supposed to know will tell me right. and then i'll know mm -hmm. but that's not an idea of knowledge that makes any sense to someone who's begun to recognize that knowledge in the scientific sense has to do with my apprehension not someone else's so someone who's supposed to know tells me and then i know no that's not right Someone who's supposed to know tells me what they have apprehended or experienced themselves as having apprehended. I listen to it, and I either believe them or don't, or I come to my own apprehension, and then I say I know. Mm -hmm. But right now, there's still the idea which an anthroposophical worldview um, would refer to as backward and, and out of date, that I know something because an authority who's supposed to know told me. Mm-hmm. That's not knowledge. Mm -hmm. right. And as long as we submit ourselves, anthroposophy would say, to the idea of knowledge in that sense as something transmitted by authorities, we are going to be enslaved somehow, some way, right. in our lives and, and in our existence mm -hmm. as human beings beyond our own personal lives. Our collective life as a social order is going to be subject to the slavery mm -hmm. that comes when we accept knowledge as anything transmitted by somebody else who knows. Mm -hmm. So it's in that sense that, that you were saying that Steiner saw the activity of thinking itself as a path that could, uh, I, I think the way he said it was that it, it could actually create or bring spiritual or mystical insight or understanding to the point of being fact, being objective. Um, it has to do with certain very real processes in the soul itself, and now we're getting into the path itself a bit here. Mm -hmm. It has to do with very real processes in the soul itself, which in English we don't really talk about so much anymore. In German, the word for mind is soul. Mm -hmm. They're the same word. I see. So, um, so in the in the German language, even though it's no different in the German academic world, main, in a mainstream sense, than it is in in other parts of the world. That when we say mind in German, even though we use the word soul, <laughs> um, academically, the idea is that it's a material thing. It's the brain, essentially, or chemical reactions in the brain, mm -hmm. or electric charges in the brain. Um, but they still use the word soul for it. Mm -hmm. um, but the, but the very fact that in, in German there is this word soul that's still being applied gives us a, a way in German to proceed a little differently than in English where we have mind, which has never been all that clear, a conception, the word mind. It doesn't really – it doesn't give – I don't experience the word mind as giving you a picture of anything. Mm -hmm. Whereas the word soul, most people can picture some, you could say, metaphorical or symbolic image that – Essence. Yeah, some right. essence mm -hmm. that is picturable. And Steiner speaks at great length about the necessity to be able to picture what we're thinking about. To the degree we can't picture what we're thinking about, we're being drawn into a kind of thinking that's mathematical. And there's a very great need for that kind of thinking, and there's certainly nothing wrong with it, of course. But to the degree that human thinking becomes abstract and, in that sense, mathematical, um, rather than based on images, 
we tend exactly to get drawn into the idea that we know something before we do. We don't know something, he would say, before we can picture it vividly out of our own experience. And this capacity to picture vividly out of our own experience is related to a process I was beginning to say before in the soul. It has to, this path of initiation has to do with certain processes in the soul that begin with the capacity to make a picture. When we learn how to make a picture, not just have one come to us, which is different, not have an image simply emerge in consciousness, but actually make one. We're engaging in an active and free, by its nature, process. No one can make you do it. Mm-hmm. You're engaging in an active and free process mentally called thinking, and Steiner refers to that kind of thinking as spiritual activity. Now, again, it's a very important distinction to, to have clear for the listener or reader of this effort to express the path. It, the, 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 the difference, the distinction needs to be clearer. The difference between an image that arises in consciousness spontaneously and one that is made by the conscious will mentally of the thinker. When we, gain, when, we, when we focus on our inner life in such a way as to become capable of consciously making images to reflect our inner or outer experience, then we're beginning, we're, we're beginning to take steps on a path of cognition that leads to ultimately through certain exercises that can be um, practiced. It leads to the capacity for a kind of extension of the mental processes without ever losing consciousness of them, without going into any kind of trance state or condition, without in any way falling asleep, maintaining utterly full wakefulness. There's a, there's a possibility to develop these processes to start with of image making that result, not image receiving, image making, that, re, that, that begins to uh, change in a certain very real way, as Steiner would say, the constitution itself of the inner life. Mm-hmm. The constitution itself of the inner life begins to go through a transformation mm-hmm. through certain exercises. The exercises um, can be and should, should not be undertaken, can be undertaken and should not be undertaken other than in complete wakeful awareness and in a clear conception of why one would begin to do such an exercise. Mm-hmm. And so there's never in anthroposophy any kind of authority or doctrine or um, you just follow this and you'll see what happens kind of thing. Every step is taken wakefully and freely by the individual and um, beginning again with something involved in the, creati- in the creative processes of mental life through image making, we can begin to enter into a path of awareness of our, of our experience inwardly that becomes eventually a kind of gateway to recognize how what we experience inwardly as personal, in fact, has an impersonal nature. Mm -hmm. What happens if you just let everything be as it is and have no relationship to the movement of thought and the movement of feeling eventually is that you come to see the movement of thought and the movement of feeling as having nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. And in the moment you begin to be capable of apprehending the movement of thought and the movement of feeling as having nothing to do with me, you're starting to see something objective about it. Right. And then it's possible to begin to see how the movement of thought and the movement of feeling are active forces in the world beyond me and causing things in the outer world, not necessarily through human agency directly, 
that becomes very superstitious sounding and fantastic. But I'm I'm trying to give simple um, indications in a very general sense of of this path that Steiner's talking about, which for him doesn't begin with distancing oneself from the movement of thought and movement of feeling. And it's not a detachment, but it's a real letting it be there. And then uh, have no relationship to it. That's not that's not Steiner's way to the same cognition. His way again has to do with the fact that when we create an image as as, as distinguished from simply receiving one, when we create an image, we're engaging in a process of making something real for us inwardly. That until then has had that reality simply because it came to us, whether it's an outer perception or an inner one. Mm-hmm. We're making it real to us in a new way. Right. And that freedom of relationship to what we have experienced, like the movement of thought and the movement of fear, that, that relationship of freedom to what we've experienced begins to give us a way exactly in the same way, but by a different approach, to experience these things as objectively real. Right. Objectively real that we can then, uh, we can find a way to represent with our images. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that, I mean, I can really, I can relate to the, you know, in in times when you when you really have very much let go yeah. of the stream of thought and feeling, yeah. the feeling is that you land in reality, right? And you go, oh, and you realize you always have been in reality, exactly. But you you weren't seeing reality as it is; you were seeing it the way your thoughts huh? perceive it, exactly. And, and you were mistakenly thinking that the perceptions that were flying by were you perceiving, right? And and when you realize that no, they're just perceptions, and yeah. But then you do get a sense that you, that that you are touching the real. That that there's no longer the barrier of interpretation of thought and feeling between you and what's real. That exactly. you are having a direct experience of reality. Yeah, and and and, uh, and that's a very powerful experience to have. And part of the power, I think, comes from the fact that you come to see that they're not your thoughts, right? In the first place, that's right. And there's a release that comes about in that apprehension. I think that has to do with also the capacity, ultimately. To, I'm going to go right into this other thing that I always, <laughs> as I said before we started, uh, find myself addressing in my work, the economic dimension of it, the implications of it for economics. It, it, when we become capable of realizing that our thoughts are not in that sense, quote unquote, our own, at least not the ones that just come to us. Right. The ones we have a role creatively in forming, perhaps, but not the ones that just come mm-hmm. to us. They are not in any true sense our own. And if in the, the the moment that that apprehension becomes possible on the inner plane, it also, in my experience, becomes possible for people to start to realize that also the outer things that come to us are not our own. Right. And mm-hmm. if the outer things that come to us are not our own either, whose are they? Mm-hmm. Well, just as thought is is uh, capable of, uh, as Steiner said, becoming the basis for unity between human beings, because when I talk to you about something out of my thinking. Sander says we wouldn't talk to each other out of our thinking about a given phenomenon if we weren't trying in some way to convey our our apprehension of its reality to the other. That is to say, we believe that by thinking and speaking out of our thinking, we can convince the other. Mm -hmm. Well, we would never have the idea that we could convince the other of something if we didn't assume or believe that the other person had the capacity to think just like we do. And in this sense, thinking becomes a vehicle for understanding and communication through language expressing thought, it becomes the basis of unity between human beings rather than the basis of conflict. Mm-hmm. If we're just arguing viewpoints in order to win and beat the other with some logic or even just by the tone of our voice, we're engaged in warfare, but we're not using thought 
for what it's actually capable of, which is reconciliation or communion. Right. So Steiner talks about the true communion of the human being being in thinking. In the in the Old Testament, we have an example of an Old Testament prophet saying, "Come, let us reason together." Mm-hmm. And in the thinking of Socrates, and in the monastic traditions uh, during the Scholastic Age, there were uh, there was this awareness of the possibility that thought is something we can share, mm-hmm. through which we can come to see one another's perspectives. That is to say, that which the other has apprehended and I have not yet, I can come to see it. I wouldn't yet say I know it for myself necessarily, mm-hmm. depending how well I come mm-hmm. to see it or how fully, but I can come to see it. And then I can communicate and we can transcend the that which divides us, which is normally the feeling that the other person can't possibly know what we're experiencing. And I guess, just to be clear, the way Steiner would, would, would bring you to the point of being able to say, I know this for myself, yeah. would be when you had constructed a picture of it or an image of it for yourself. And, and if that image had in turn had an effect upon the soul... Of a mm-hmm. certain kind. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is where he can start to sound pretty vague if you don't pay close attention to exactly the way in which he's putting his thoughts together and <laughs> giving expression to something through doing that. Mm-hmm. There's something that's happening when we communicate that's not just limited to the given phrase or sentence or paragraph. The way thoughts relate to one another in a certain order that result in more and more meaning as, as the construction of the, you could say, argument proceeds... That itself is also part of the discipline of anthroposophy, to be aware of how things follow upon one another. So he talks about, the, for example, the, the changes in the life of the soul that begin to constitute what we call knowledge. What is that feeling of knowing something, as distinguished from simply having heard about it or maybe believing it? If I go to Paris and I look at the Eiffel Tower, right. it makes a certain impression. I can come away from that experience with the Eiffel Tower, and I can retain the impression in consciousness as a picture. Mm-hmm. Now, I can also see a picture of the Eiffel Tower in a magazine and come away from the magazine with that same picture in my mind. But the picture of the Eiffel Tower that someone has in consciousness who's actually gained the picture from being there is going to have a different weight mm-hmm. in a very objective mm-hmm. sense, a very real sense, but it's subtle. In a very real sense, the picture of the Eiffel Tower that someone gains who's been there is going to feel different mm-hmm. than the picture of the Eiffel Tower uh, in the consciousness of someone who just saw it on a, right. in a photograph. That, that's interesting because was, I was thinking when you were describing how Steiner uh, talks about creating an image, that the image you're talking about, image tends to translate into two-dimensional picture but but of course the image he's talking about must be much richer it's full-blooded multi-dimensional i call it the full-blooded image he probably maybe he did use that word but i I like that word for it because it's really it's and i'm going to go ahead and mention someone else whose work i'm very interested in elron hubbard sure Um, because elron hubbard says certain things that are so stunningly similar and and uh and yet different Uh, hubbard would never call himself an occultist and he doesn't teach a path of cognition uh of higher worlds, not at all. But he, but he does, when Hubbard analyzes mental processes, as you can see in his book Dianetics, which became this big bestseller in 1950 in this country and in the world, I think, beyond that, um, Walter Winchell said he, uh, that it was going to be the new mental health. You know, there were people in the mainstream civilization when Hubbard published Dianetics that really acclaimed it. And in the meantime now, of course, it has a different reputation generally. But, but if you look at the way that Hubbard analyzes mental processes you can see such a similarity. And it shows that Hubbard did have contact in some way 
with this kind of, um, I would call it this stream of thought about how we can look at the inner life from a Western perspective of, of, of spirituality. He looks at the mental life of the human being and sees, for example, this is a, a, even a kind of commonplace in the, in the Scientological world. You can talk to Scientologists who will give you this as an example of something. They'll say, make a picture. Okay, now you've got your picture. Keep it there in your consciousness. To say, you, know, you can close your eyes and have this picture in front of your mind's eye, as it were. Now, who's looking at it? Who's right. looking at that picture? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we tend to identify ourselves with our images, with our thoughts. And unless and, or until we can actually see that they're not us. Right. We're the right. ones experiencing right. them. Mm -hmm. Who's that? Mm -hmm. That's what Hubbard's asking. Right. And he goes into great detail too in a different way, very much uh, in certain ways, some would say opposed to what Steiner was interested in. But as his beginning point of his own discipline that he calls Scientology, of course, the, um, the beginning point of it is a very similar approach to mental phenomena and uh, an awareness of what it means to perceive as distinguished from recall, as distinguished from imagine. Right. Recollection, perception, imagination. Mm -hmm. Hubbard outlines these differences in mental life in a very clear way that I don't find uh, to be the basis of a lot of discourse about mm -hmm. mental life, mm -hmm. and I think should be. Whether other things, Hubbard or Steiner, anyone who comes to um, be able to look at things with this quality of clarity, what, what other things people say once they've said one particularly insightful thing are true or not is another matter. Right. So I'm never suggesting that Steiner or Hubbard or anyone else should be taken as an authority because they f you find one thing that they really got. Right. <laughs> sure, but it does mean that if, they found one, if you found one thing they really seem to get... Well, okay, so maybe there's others too, and you can look into it. And uh, Definitely. The main thing is always to be able, and this is the emphasis of anthroposophy, and I experience Hubbard is emphasizing the same. The main thing is always to be able to maintain one's freedom in relationship to the thought of another mm -hmm. so that one does not become enslaved to the idea of authority in any way. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, I just wanted to ask you, um, in terms of Steiner's, you know, the kind of the development of his work. Yeah. Uh, he was born in 1861. Yeah. I'll tell you, I, I, I'll, I know very little about him, and I can tell you what I know, and then you can fill in the numerous gaps. Whatever I know, because I'm not a historian, but I, I do know some things, yeah. Sure. Uh, he was born in 1861, and my understanding is that he was a, a philosopher, uh, you know, an academic, uh, uh, someone who was recognized in his own right as, yeah. as a real intellectual of yeah. his time. Exactly. He, he was a lecturer, uh, and then he... Some he he uh, came in contact with anthroposophy, uh, uh, sorry, theosophy. Theosophy. He became in contact with theosophy, which was the the movement that Madame Blavatsky had founded. Right. Uh, that Krishnamurti, uh, the great J. Krishnamurti, yeah. eventually came out of. Right. And separated with. Right. Uh, became a major occultist movement. Uh, worldwide anthroposophy, you mean Anthropo yeah. uh, mm -hmm. so sorry, theosophy. Oh, theosophy was yes, mm -hmm. and and he became very a very prominent figure within theosophy, right, for some time, right. Uh, then eventually left theosophy to found anthroposophy, and he left uh, he left uh, theosophy exactly over the Krishnamurti matter. Oh, interesting. I didn't um, know that because um, Krishnamurti had been declared as a young boy, you know, by the leaders of the Anthroposophical Society after Blavatsky's death, um, at, to be the coming world teacher. By the Theosophists. By the Theosophists, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. by the leaders. And mm -hmm. 
mostly English speaking in India, but and in you know in England, Annie Besant and others. And uh, and Steiner had a, a cordial relationship with them, but he he was working at Theosophical Society in the German speaking world and had become the general secretary, in fact, of the German Theosophical Society. Um, and when this announcement was made from the headquarters of the Theosophical Movement that this young Indian boy was the coming world teacher, he said, "No, I am the general secretary of the German Theosophical Society." And I recognize my responsibility as an occultist within an occult stream with certain people in a position of seniority, um, and, and, not in a, and not in a strictly hierarchical sense, but in a sense that has to do with the way occultists need to work together um, in a unified way, representing whatever it is they're teaching as a path. You know, mm -hmm. you can't have all kinds of different perspectives being conveyed to students who are looking for a certain way to develop. Right. Um, if you have those different perspectives, you need to work them out or you need to form your own way mm -hmm. of expressing that difference. In the case of the Krishnamurti matter, um, he simply could not, he said, as a, as a human being, <laughs> let alone as the general secretary of the Theosophical Society, which is in, uh, dedicated to the pursuit of truth and brotherhood for all mankind, he could not represent the idea to anyone that this young man was the coming world teacher, he said, because he's not. Mm-hmm. And, He's and, simply not, and that became the basis of this division between him and the leadership of the... Uh, and he had nothing against Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. He simply knew, he said, that this is not the one that they say he is. And so that became the basis of an inability of the leadership of the Theosophical Society to work together with Rudolf Steiner. And so he left. And so point. what happened is basically the German Theosophical Society became, as a consequence, the... Anthroposophical Society. I see. That took on a different name and began to be oriented to his way of expressing the path. And the Theosophical leaders had known all along from the beginning of Rudolf Steiner's engagement with Theosophy that he was representing the path in his own way. But they never saw it as contradicting the essential tenets or perspectives until this moment when he said, I cannot represent the Krishnamurti as the world teacher. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Krishnamurti himself said, well, you're, you know, I'm not the world teacher, yeah, so... Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and Krishnamurti confirmed what Steiner had seen already long before Krishnamurti was an adult and confirmed it. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that that's the origin of the, the Anthroposophical Society. It's really the German Theosophical Society composed largely of people who decided that Rudolf Steiner was trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And so they formed the, the Anthroposophical Society. I see. And, and before he was a theosophist, uh, my understanding is that uh, he was he was translating the uh, Goethe's scientific works. Yeah, and, he and that as a, was how he got started. As a young man, he uh, he discovered already as a very young man, as a boy, he had experiences that he knew he couldn't talk about because when he tried, like his father would tell him to shut up or, you know, mm -hmm. people acted like he was crazy or something like that. You know, he had experiences as a boy that... Um, Clearly, to he, a lot of it for him revolved around, in terms of his own awareness of, of his gift, around his experience of, of, ge, of uh, geometry. When he studied geometry, as a young boy, became, as a, I think he, a very young boy, he became fascinated with it and studied it very intensively because he found in geometrical truths something he experienced as real, transcending the material, real. And that's where, for him, the path began really quite young, as a child, of 
recognizing that there's a quality of experience the per, a human being is capable of having that has nothing to do with personal wishes or personal um, prejudices or superstition, but there's a sphere within which we can move mentally and in the life of the soul, in other words, that has a life about it that's completely, in an outer sense, you'd say, independent of what we see around us materially, but is utterly real and utterly objective. And so geometry is the beginning point for him of the way we can see that it's possible for the human being to apprehend as objectively so things that have no material expression. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so as he developed as a young man, then um, he became, as I said early on, aware that he couldn't talk about these things. People would just think he was, they didn't he was crazy or making no sense. So he didn't talk about them. He developed his gift, and he had, uh, later on he had a, another consciousness dawn on him that he really had to be sure that every single insight that he came to in this inner sense was one that he indeed himself had come to and was not given. Mm-hmm. So he began to reject what, he, what you might call a kind of naive acceptance of his inner experience. And instead, every time he had an experience that came to him, instead of simply accepting it, in a certain sense, naively, as that's what's true, he would go through a process to uh, discern for himself. And then he could say, once he completed that process, and only then would he ever say that a given thing that he had perceived supersensibly was a fact. Mm -hmm. But then he was also always emphasizing the necessity himself of not accepting an authoritative expression. Mm -hmm. So if he came to see something as a fact and said so, it was never in a tone that had anything like the quality of, and this is what you must know and believe because I say so, it was always in the same tone in which one might say, I know for sure that that car hit that lady at this intersection because I saw it with my own eyes. That quality of conviction in saying it's a fact. And then if someone else comes and says, well, you know, you thought it was the lady, but it was actually her younger sister who you didn't see in the car. And, you know, someone comes and says, well, from this other perspective I had that you didn't, that's what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Rudolf Steiner was the kind of person and his whole personality and the way he spoke and wrote was imbued with this sensibility that if you come with a perspective that I didn't have and tell me so, there's nothing in that to be disrespected or that constitutes disrespect towards me. Right, right. So in that way, uh, uh, again, Steiner is <clears throat> is really bringing the the uh, rational reasoning and, and uh, sensibilities of science. Right. To the spiritual world, that's because right. it's very and it's a very objective inquiry into what's true, what's real. That right, that that's really emphasizing yeah. one's own authentic understanding of what's right. true, and is always open to further information right. and other perspectives. And that's why he often said, "We must come to be capable of viewing things from every possible perspective, mm-hmm. because until we become capable of seeing things from every possible perspective, we can't claim to know, in the ultimate sense of knowing anything." If there is any ultimate sense, even <laughs> we can't claim that, and that's so. He was always warning against narrow-mindedness, one-sidedness, especially one-sidedness, and only having a given perspective that we're really sure about, but then not being open to the others that can fill in the picture and make even more clear, not less clear, more clear, mm-hmm. what is really the case about what we saw. And so, um, and to, for him, this was a this was a purely theosophical principle already this brotherhood of all the religions of the world and for him anthroposophy was the ultimate extension of that sensibility in the scientific sense 
we must be able to apprehend how all the great religious teachers are saying, not the same thing, maybe very different things, but they're, whatever they're saying, it's about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and unless we start to recognize these different perspectives and become capable freely as individuals ourselves of coming to an, our own apprehension of what's real about them, we won't have world peace. We can do all the ecumenism in the world where people agree to disagree and work together. But in the end, those, those efforts at ecumenism always leave those behind who are so passionately committed to what they know that they could never simply work with someone who believes the opposite just because it's nice to work with them. Mm-hmm. There has to be a reconciliation beyond the level of being nice to each other and willing to work together. Right. There has to be a reconciliation on a much deeper level of human contact where I come to see that all these things you're saying that I thought contradicted what I think I know or do know don't mm-hmm. because there's a higher reality that neither of us were maybe apprehending that unites us in a much higher sense and then our cooperation becomes not just a very a being nice to each other mm-hmm. it becomes a true brotherhood right. out of which completely revolutionary things are possible well that's great because that that as you said the, the kind of peace and cooperation that that our pluralistic yeah. society has given us which is essentially based on you have your truth i have my truth right. And and we just come together in spite of the fact that right. we have completely different points of view, right. which is obviously a big leap forward from you have your truth, I have my truth, and I'm, I'm going to kill, kill you. you right? <laughs> so that's it was a big leap evolution forward. Evolution is happening. Right. That was an evolution, but what you're so passionate about is the fact that we need to go beyond that to say, but we also we now need to now that we've learned to get along together, right. we have to use our ability to get along together and our ability to reason in order to come together in a higher understanding of what is actually true. And I would say something happened in the feeling life of humanity, and Martin Luther King to me had a lot to do with it, not outwardly causing it, but as an expression of it. Um, something happened in the feeling life of humanity that has changed over the since slavery was abolished, and there's something that's changed in human feeling, I think that even in Steiner's time wasn't the way it is now. On a feeling plane, I think people, and that's where all this niceness stuff is coming from, you know. My only religion is to be kind. You know, mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely, you know, that's new. I mean, when in human history was that the religion, you know? Mm-hmm. Great. So in our feeling life, we are changing. Something's changed. We can observe the evolution. It's real. We're changing. We embrace everyone. We don't want to judge anyone. We want to be kind. We want to be nice. We want to work together, right? We want world peace, or many mm-hmm. of us do at least. <laughs> Then how do we get to the quality of unity with each other in thinking that produces this ultimate explosion of brotherhood? Right. And that's where it's, it's feeling that has to come together, not feeling alone won't do it. Thinking has to come in now, as you just said, the rational element has to be added in a way that allows us to be, to be, it allows it to become a force for reconciliation rather than argumentation and further division. Mm-hmm. And then the will will be engaged. Right. So in Anthroposophy, we talk about the threefold nature of the human soul, thinking, feeling, and willing. Each is independent. You can feel wonderful things for someone with whom you utterly disagree. I have this example of a woman that I I, I see over and over at conferences we have in Concord, Massachusetts around the transcendentalist impulse. Mm -hmm. There's a lady who always comes to them now. She loves them. There's something about us and them that she loves. But there's certain things that we say that she completely passionately disagrees with and just it, it drives her crazy that we think these crazy things. But on a feeling level, she just can't stay away. So it's possible to be feelingly deeply connected and then as soon as a certain idea comes along that you disagree with, lose all of that feeling connection and be unable to work together. That whole realm of thought has to be redeemed too, Steiner said, and he talked about the redemption of the intellect. Mm -hmm. 
It has to be redeemed. And once it's redeemed, then it's no longer an obstacle to this feeling connectedness. It becomes a servant to it. Mm-hmm. And then the will can come in and in an unobstructed way, in, with a common will, we can do something together for you know whatever the problems are we feel or think you know, need to be addressed. Right. So I'm just thinking, because I, I, I'm assuming this is true, but I'll, I'm going to check it. Because I know that Steiner had a very evolutionary point of view. So right. he was really thinking about the development of... of well, his of lifetime was, was one in which, you know, Darwin had become, in 1859, the... Uh, the um, Publication of Origin of Species. Origin of Species. I couldn't think of the word origin. Yeah, The Origin of Species, 1859, and then Steiner's born in 1861. So he grows He grows up, he's born and grows up into the culture that is wrestling with all of this, in a certain sense, revelatory right. material. Revelatory not in the spiritual sense, but just like a revelation to, the, to consciousness or to, to reason. Mm-hmm. In these discoveries of Darwin, he he enters into the world as a you know a, he's born into the world of that revolution and wrestles with it himself as a growing academic, and he discovers in the work of Goethe an approach to evolution that he experiences as the antidote to the materialistic form of Darwinism. So he finds in Darwin this quote where Darwin talks about God. Academics in the meantime have tried to show and may have proven that Darwin actually had no such belief and was saying that to mollify critics. Whatever the case may be about that, Steiner discovered in Darwin's own writing nothing, even if the God reference was insincere. He found nothing in, in the actual text, The Origin of Species, that would justify the attitude towards evolution that later arose, which is that it can only be, it is the way that we can see that the only truly scientific approach to things is through material, uh, pers- uh, observation of material realities and trying to find cause and effect relationships among them. And so uh, Steiner found in Goethe an antidote to this materialization of what Darwin had discovered, you might say. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Goethe had already been talking about the, the um, morphology of, of physiological features in human beings and animals. Goethe had predicted the intermaxillary bone in the jaw. He said, we will discover in the human being this intermaxillary bone because we can see by the morphology of animals and the human being itself. It has to be there. And it, they discovered it. So there are things that Goethe showed as, um, as a genius for science that, as I said earlier, were neglected and ignored, eventually mm-hmm. forgotten. But Steiner, it was, for, it was in Goethe, he said, that we must, to Goethe, that we must turn in order to find the evolutionary thinking that can allow us to apprehend the real nature of form in organic things. In material things that have no organic form, uh, the enumerating method is the way. With instruments, great. But as soon as you get to anything that's organic, that actually changes its form, you know, because uh, things that are organic, what what do we mean? We mean something that has a material element, but that material element changes, and organs unfold, that's organic, organs unfold. Are, are evolve as it were within the given organism or structure they unfold and they have they're so completely diverse and unique so we talk often in this way when we're giving introductory uh, indications about what anthroposophy is about in Goethe's work a root what is the difference between a root and a blossom what's the difference between a root and a stem what's the difference between a stem and a branch and a branch and a leaf and a stem and a leaf and a root and a blossom and a blossom and a fruit mm-hmm. All of those things, root, stem, branch, leaf, fruit, blossom, 
They're so stunningly diverse in their character, but they're part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you have something that has organs developing that are utterly diverse and have different functions, but come from the same material beginning, you've got something at work in nature that is no longer material. That's what Goethe was already saying. No, no you, longer purely material, I guess. Yeah, no, the material element is there, but right. what's at work in it is not material mm-hmm. because it's changing the very nature of what we think of as materiality. Mm-hmm. And so there's something at work there that um, in anthroposophy we call the etheric. That's an old term that can easily be repudiated because it was also a term given to a theory about the ether and space. And you know, so you can laugh at terms and you can repudiate them for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with understanding what they're trying to say. Right. But in occult science, we talk about the etheric, which is this uh, realm, a real existent, objectively apprehensible realm of life forces. Objectively apprehensible to start with in the way that those life forces transform the material in an organism. Mm-hmm objectively apprehensible as itself, as the sphere of life forces itself, independent of that material element, through the steps Steiner talks about, and I've mentioned briefly here as a beginning point, through imagination, we can begin to apprehend apart from the material, the realm of life forces in question, see their activity, see how it is the case that a certain kind of life force at work in a certain way will inevitably produce a root Mm -hmm. and how that root must inevitably become a stem, Mm -hmm. how the stem must inevitably become a leaf, a flower, a uh, a blossom, excuse me, a fruit, and the seeds then within the fruit that then continue the process when they enter the earth. There's a, uh, an image then of the plant. Steiner, call, uh, excuse me, Goethe called it the Urpflanze, which means the, it's very hard to translate the German word Ur, but it means original because most ancient, you could say. <laughs> original because most ancient plant. The Urpflanze, the original archetype in that sense, you could say exactly, is another way of saying it, of the plant. That's th- that he then presented to Schiller, the great poet and dramatist Schiller, they mm-hmm. were colleagues. Goethe presented his drawing of the Urpflanze, the original archetypal plant. And Schiller said, well, that's, that's, that's just an idea. It's lovely, but it's just an idea. Goethe said, no, it is not just an idea. It's real. There is something apprehensible Goethe already saw in the sphere of life forces that uh, it, only if it's apprehended as real, independent of the material, do we come to understand life itself and how it works? And as long as we try to talk about life or living organisms from a perspective that sees them as purely material, we will always utterly fail to heal in medicine in the long run, utterly fail to do justice to the earth and agriculture, utterly fail to deal with starvation and with the movement of poverty around the planet. It shifts from here to there. There are forces that work in all living organisms and in communities of organisms that must be apprehended in their true nature, which is independent of matter, if we're ever going to do anything about the afflictions that have such materially devastating consequences. So this would be very much in line with a a kind of platonic way of seeing... It starts out as platonic in the sense that it recognizes a sphere of things that are real that are not material. Mm -hmm. So that's a platonic sense. But then I, I talked in the beginning of our conversation about the relationship between nominalism and realism. Steiner also addresses the relationship between Platonism and Aristotelianism. So Aristotle is Plato's student. Mm-hmm. We have this great image from Raphael, the great 
painter of the Renaissance, we have this image of uh, the School of Athens. All these great figures from Greek civilization are gathered, as it were, under one roof. <laughs> and at the center of this image is Aristotle and Plato. They're walking in their robes in this imaginary temple. Mm -hmm. They're walking in their robes having discourse. One can see that they're having discourse and they're gesturing. Plato's hand is pointed towards the heavens. Aristotle's is to the, pointed towards the earth. Mm -hmm. And so Plato, the Platonic idea is that there's something real, you could say, in the heavenly spheres that makes itself manifest in a shadowy way materially. Aristotelianism, from this perspective, it's not an ism in the sense of an ideology, but it's, a, it's an impulse, an approach to things. The Aristotelian approach is rather the earth itself. We, that's why in the painting by Raphael, his finger is pointing down. The Aristotelian approach is to look into the earth itself, to the material reality itself, and apprehend in it principles, realities that transcend it. And so Steiner also said these two streams must come together. There are those who are much more comfortable with the, with the feeling of, of revelatory significance to ideas as real. And there are others who really find that they must dig into the earth, as it were, and find out from the earth itself what's going on behind it. And that's Goethe. Mm -hmm. Goethe is the Aristotelian among the two, Goethe and Schiller. I see. In that sense, you could say he wants to know from the earth what's behind it. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to, I felt I needed to add that too. No, that makes sense. I mean, cause, yeah. because in both of those cases, there's realism yeah. and that there's, there's a reality given to that, which is transcendent. Yeah. But one approaches the transcendent sort of through the transcendent. Right. The other approaches the transcendent through, through the, the material, through the and, earth. And just to make a really radical jump, so to speak <laughs> in Steiner's thinking, he talks this way, but in this conversation, it'll sound like a huge jump from all we've been speaking about in terms of rationality to the revelations of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, Steiner says that's Abel and Cain. Abel raises a flock, and he, when he needs to make an offering, he picks up a sheep, and it's accepted. No effort. Mm -hmm. It's like grace. Mm -hmm. That's the platonic stream, you could say, in one sense. Things come to one, and one knows them, and they're real, and they... They make the material world seem unreal. Um, but the Cain, well, who's Cain? He digs into the earth. He cultivates it. He, he raises a crop. He brings the fruits of the earth, and they're rejected. Mm -hmm. Why? I want to ask you, Jeff, if you can, <laughs> why do you imagine? <laughs> that that Cain's, Cain's offerings, which he produced from the earth, are rejected. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, Steiner's, I don't want to... Uh, yeah. I, 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 don't, I have no idea. <laughs> well, Steiner, Steiner talks about the... Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but Steiner, because it's not a true or false answer, obviously. Sure. It's funny, but this, uh, the, the images in Genesis are themselves uh, exactly images, he would say, that, that reflect something. And they were constructed by an initiate who had an apprehension of something real, spiritually, occultly, and then formed these images to give expression to it. So who's Cain? The one who digs into the earth, who has to find out the truth from the earth, but God doesn't accept that offering. Why? It didn't come from God. <laughs> it didn't come from God. Mm -hmm. But if you do well, your offering will be accepted. Are you your brother's keeper? If you do well, your offering will be accepted. The ones who have to dig into the earth to find the truth and can't just accept it from God. At first, their offering is rejected. Those are the materialists. Mm -hmm. 
they're not going to accept anything that's true spiritually just because you say so or someone says so right. or because you had some revelation. They wouldn't even accept their own revelation. If they had one, they'd call it a fantasy. They got to know from the earth. But then, I mean, this is what goes back to what I said about nominalism and realism at the beginning. Steiner's saying there's nothing wrong with that. This is not a condemnation of anybody. There, though, and he exactly says that the Canaanite, so to speak, stream, the one that has to dig into the earth to find out the truth, will become the most important one. Because only people who dig into the earth and find behind it the spiritual are going to be able to do anything about the materialism that denies the spiritual altogether. There has to be an approach that is exactly in that sense what he would call canite mm -hmm. in order to meet the materialism that's de devastating the planet. And then what? If the canite person in that sense who digs into the earth to find the truth doesn't just get it by grace, if he or she then brings the fruits of that to Abel, to the one who had the revelation from God, who just had the sheep there and could offer it and it was accepted, who had all the grace. If the Cain stream brings the fruit of its offering to the Abel stream that has all this revelation from God, and they bring their offering together to the altar, which is what Jesus Christ said, don't come to the altar alone. Mm -hmm. Reconcile with your brother and come together. If the Cainite stream and the Abel stream come together, Cain doesn't kill Abel. As you know, right? The, right? the tendency yeah. is, you know, all oh, those right wing religious fanatics who have all their revelations. Well, right. There's a hatred there. But if the, if the people who really recognize the cutting edge is this ability to look at reality objectively and find the spiritual in it and unite, then, the, then that cutting edge, which is the Canaanite stream, this is Steiner's exact teaching, that's the cutting edge now. The, the scientific age is here. And the Canaanite stream has to, instead of bashing the, the um, religious folks over the head with their superior knowledge, come to see how what the revelations have always been saying to the able type people are true. But if they're not understood in a much more subtle and thorough way in the way that only a scientific approach can understand them, not as constructions of the, you know, Freudian psychological concept of the mind, but as real, those revelations of the able type people are real. God is real, but we find him in the earth. And only those who go the path of finding him in the earth are going to be able to deal, as I've been saying, with the materialism that's saying that he doesn't exist. Right. Well, that's fascinating because it, it, again, makes me think about what I was reading about William James, the, the American philosopher, because a, a big part of what he was, uh, he was very against metaphysics. And I've been thinking a little bit as we're talking, how right. does that fit in? But, but his reasoning for being anti-metaphysical wasn't because he personally didn't believe in something beyond because right. because he did. Right. But he said metaphysical arguments will never convince a materialist. Never. They they just don't work. So we as people who want to create space for the spiritual right. need to find a way to speak the same language as a materialist. We need to use reason, rationality, right. non-metaphysical ways of seeing the world yeah. in order to discover and and prove in essence or at least create space for right something beyond the world. And there's this, and you, so you can see the same movement, as Steiner said this too, you can see the same movement happening in Europe and in America, but sometimes it's not clear. So you mentioned James, and then you know that in our work we have a lot to do with Emerson and Thoreau That's and right. Alcott. Mm -hmm. Emerson is saying the same thing in a different way, and Steiner's saying it, and uh, those who recognize that there is a movement, and when Steiner used the word movement, he always meant a real spiritual power moving hearts. Right. 
those who recognize that there is and was already right after Darwin, and before, of course, but especially after, a movement to take the fruit of that scientific research of a Cainite kind, you know, digging into the earth precisely, right. um, to take the fruit of that and not let it be co-opted by the forces that use it to justify the view that there's only matter, but rather, and it, again, it's a real movement in James, in Emerson, Steiner's doing the same thing in Europe. There are people who were already there right away trying to show us in intellectual ways that this is uh, a fruit that can be for the good of the spiritual right. consciousness. It actually can, and it can enhance spirituality, exactly. not, not deny it. Exactly. And I think uh, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who predated uh, Steiner, yeah. but was also very influenced by Goethe, Yes. And and I'm and there's a word and I don't know how to pronounce it in German and building uh means development. It's the Bildung. Bildung. Yeah. And, and that was something that uh, Emerson very much latched on to yeah. and, and kind of was the source, I think, of a lot of his evolutionary. That's impulse. an interesting word because in German it means it's the word for education in German. I see. So the educational system is called the Bildungswesen, the you know, the establishment of, of education. And the but the fascinating thing is we used to have that word in that same exact word, we used to have it in English. Before we called it education, we called it exactly what the Germans still do, Bildung, formation. That's what the word actually means. Formation. Formation. Mm -hmm. But then that, that's an important subtlety to me in our language because what does it mean to educate someone as distinguished from form them? Mm -hmm. Some people are afraid of the idea of we have the right even to think we could form another. You know, that starts to sound very patriarchal. But what's behind it actually is the sense that the activity of thinking is formative. So when I convey my thoughts to another person, I'm forming their thoughts because thought is itself like a, it's a kind of super sensible material like clay. So when you have a young person and you're teaching them, what are you doing? Are you educating them in the sense of filling their head with things they're supposed to know? <laughs> or are you in fact, and, and, and I would say there, you are whether you like it or not. When you tell a young person something, you're forming them. Right. And that's a responsibility. That's right. Much different than filling their head with something. Mm -hmm. So the word formation was a better word to me for what we're doing when we teach. And that's still the German word, Bildung. That's, what that, that's the relationship there. It does have the implication exactly of evolution too because things form. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And that's, I think, I mean, my understanding was that that, that Emerson was very taken by that that, yeah. that, that, that was a real stream in his thinking, this, this, also this idea that thinking itself was part of the formation of, exactly. of the greater human. Yeah. And that was picked up by James, who, who was a close friend of the family, actually. Uh -huh. and, and, and he had the same sense that ideas and thoughts yeah. are real, and right. they build, and exactly. they form things, exactly. and they, they need to be treated that way. They, they can't be separated from reality. They can't be reduced, I would say, also then to electrical charges and chemical reactions. Right. And, and the way that I think James thought of it, yeah, they, they can't be reduced on that to the material yeah. side, or philosophically, they can't be reduced to mirrors that reflect reality. Right. They are part of reality. No, excellent. And, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that, I think, because he was working in a more philosophical domain, and that's what he didn't like about the way some idealists and transcendentalist ideas were, would somehow relegate the mind to, they're all they're all they're, they they tend to be taken as metaphors instead of something instead of part active of reality, and living active re exactly yeah. mm -hmm. active and living great well i think that that's, that's fantastic yes, thank and, you and uh, <laughs> thank you very much for that yeah. and uh great we'll do it again sometime yeah thanks okay bye now <laughs> bye